Okay, we're going to jump right back into it. First Peter. I hope you have your Bibles. And there's, I think, some in the back there. Um, I, too, hope you all rested really well. I was sadly woken up at 5 a.m. by a roommate who locked herself outside, out, outside, in the cold, wearing her cute red polka dot pajamas. And I rescued her. And you will be forever grateful, Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, I did sleep very well. Okay. So if you see me nodding off later, maybe that's why. All right, we're going to jump back into 1 Peter. Um, I have an outline on the board there for you. I see we at least filled the second row. Well done, ladies. Good job. We still have the front row if anybody wants to join me and Susan up here. Uh, last night, we studied the reality of the glorious salvation that outweighs all earthly suffering. Do you all need these lights on? I see some of you are taking notes. Is it too dark? You okay? You're okay. Okay. Um, I, you know, in bed last night, I, I actually thought there, I failed you in one simple way with one application that I have been taught to really believe, <laughs> to really believe this truth. One great application that I want to make sure I mention to you is when it's difficult to believe the hope that we have in the midst of suffering, pray the promises of God. It's a great truth that somebody taught me once. It's just pray the promises of God. I, I don't feel like life is going the way it should go right now. I'm going to pray the promise. He promised in his word certain things, and I'm going to pray those. And, and one way that I tend to work that out, praying the promises of God, is I sing. And even the songs that we sang this morning, those songs are the promises of God. When you sing those songs, you're, you're, if you believe that, then I think we're all doing okay. If you really believe what was sung, and it's not, I'm not saying that, oh, you just have to blindly believe because I'm one that does not do that. I just have to choose to trust. Sometimes I just have to choose it. And so I just pray the promises of God. I say, you promised this, so I'm going to hold you to it. And he will be held to it. Okay, we're going to move on. So last night it was all about why do we suffer with hope? Why do we suffer with hope? Because our Savior suffered with hope. Because the glory of salvation outweighs all earthly suffering. We turned our gaze up and we set our hope, our living hope, fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. And Peter continues in his letter. We don't have time this weekend to cover every single verse. But he continues in his letter through chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2 to prepare the minds of his readers he wants the, their minds to be set on the right things. He tells them about who God is, about what God has done, and about who they are in Christ. And before we approach our section of Scripture, which starts in chapter 2, verse 11, that right before that, in chapter 2, verse 10, he tells them about who they are in Christ. It says there, chapter 2, verse 10, Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's hitting on the fact that not only are they saved in Christ, but they're saved to something. They're saved to a people. And where he's going to go next after this is how this people 
are to behave in a watching world. So last night I said that the Bible is all about God, and that's true. It is. It's all about Him. And now we're going to see a little bit about how we're to respond to who He is. He's the creator of the world, so whatever we do is in, re in response to Him. So we're going to look at where Peter goes next with how the people live out their Christian lives in a watching world. In other words, he moves from how they are to think about God to how they are to act in response to God. So last night we talked about why we suffered with hope. Today we're talking about what does it look like to suffer with hope. And I think in this passage, Peter's message is simply, because we've been brought into the family of God, Christians live markedly different lives. A different kind of conduct. We live markedly different lives because we have been brought into the family of God. And the three marks that Peter's going to show us are honor, freedom, and following Christ. I'm going to read the text first and then I'll pray. I'll let you all sit. Maybe we'll stand for the last time, but you can sit as I read. Just follow along silently in your Bible. Starting chapter 2, verse 11 through 25, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls let me pray father in heaven we ask you to give us ready ears ready hearts ready eyes we ask that you would help us to understand this passage before us give us your holy spirit we pray this in jesus name amen Okay, notice how Peter begins this section before us in verse 12. He begins with this one simple word that tells of his compassion and his care for his people, beloved. Beloved, dear friends, 
I'm sure Peter does not know every single person that he's writing to. I'm sure he can't know every single church member from chapter 1, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He can't. There's no way. But because they are brought into the family of God, they are no longer people of the world. They're people together. They're loved by Peter, by God. They're beloved, cherished by God. We have fellowship with each other. We have fellowship with Peter. We have fellowship with God. How much more should we call each other beloved? Beloved is how he chooses to begin. And it is with affection then that he fervently commissions them. What does it say there in verse 11? He says, beloved, I urge you, not I recommend, not I think, maybe you should, but I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions in the flesh. The command is to abstain from passions in the flesh. And the reason to do so is because you are sojourners and exiles. We studied that word last night, exile, right? Do you remember? Not all of us were here. But we studied the word exile last night. And we studied it in connection with the word elect. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. They are chosen by God to be foreigners in this strange world. They are foreigners in this world because their true home is in heaven. The very nature of being a foreigner means you look different. So they're exiles in this land. They're going to look different. What does it look like? Well, it looks different. You're going to reflect your home country, whether it's a different language, a different skin color, a different hair color, a different music you listen to, different food you eat, different mannerisms. You're, you're going to look different. You're a foreigner. And we as Christians, we have to represent our home in heaven. Put in a negative sense here, as Peter does, he says, what does that look like? It looks like abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then he puts it positively, verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. There's the mark of honor. It's the first mark of a Christian, a mark of honor. Because we have been brought into the people of God, Christians are to be living with honor. And it's interesting that Peter gives both the negative and the positive aspects of this to live honorably in order to live honorably one is urged to abstain we were reminded by we were reminded by a jay just a few weeks ago do you remember his sermon about fighting it's a fight with sin in colossians it talks about that he said it's an ongoing war he said we may have died to sin but sin has not died to us Sin is active. And our world today is going to tell you, you, can, you should follow your heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. Your desires are your desires. You're told it's not only right, but it can't be wrong what you desire. But God's word said those desires, those passions, they wage war against your soul. It might feel really good. It might feel really right. No one's getting hurt. But your soul is wasting away underneath it. That's what it says here. I think that even some of our passions could be quite godly. But we humans have a really funny way of twisting really good things into really bad things. In Romans, it talks about how we have chained, we, we have exchanged the truth for a lie. We worship the creature instead of the creator. So what could be a desire a good desire for intimacy turns into this passion with someone outside of marriage. 
even just a passion of the mind, a dream of what else it could be. I think what could be a desire to belong to this community of believers could turn into a warped need of acceptance from you instead of acceptance by God. I think what could be a desire to share the gospel with an unbeliever could really turn into taking credit for God's work. Because I did it. I shared it. I think what could be a a good desire to raise godly children can turn into making sure that they are the best at everything they do and the pressures that are put on them and all the activities that they have to be part of. I think what could be a desire to live an honorable life, as is is talked about here, could really turn into covering up sin. Just because you want to be honorable, because that's what it says in Peter, in, in 1 Peter. This wages war against your soul when these passions turn. So abstain. Abstain, I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh. We're reminded that we're not only to be different because... We're exiles, but because we're living among the Gentiles, or some of your versions might say you're living among the pagans. Why would that matter, that we're living among the pagans? This group, just so we can have a clear idea of who this is, because it's not some weird person that we don't know about. We, We know these people very well. They're a group that's living in this world that are outside the Christian faith. It's a very large group, much larger than the Christian group. In the Old Testament, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. And those that are in the family of God are the Jewish people that are born to Jewish families. And those who are not in the family of God in the Old Testament are the Gentile families. But in the New Testament, Peter's using this word not in that way. In the New Testament, Christ changes everything. You are in the family of God, not if you're born to Jewish parents, but if you are born again in Christ, like we learned last night. So he's just simply saying you're living among people that are not in the family of God. That's who the Gentiles are. We have to live among the Gentiles. We have to live among those who are outside the Christian faith. This could be your parents. It could be your doctor that gives you advice about how to take care of your body. It could be an outside person like your hairstylist. I always have really good conversations with my hairstylist who's not a Christian. It could be... It could be your neighbor, it could be your clients, it could be your children, they're everywhere. We live among people who are pagans, people who are outsiders. But what does it say? We have to live among them. What does it say in verse 12? Why do we have to do this? Verse 12, it says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may what? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That sounds like a win, that they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. Our lives marked by honor actually facilitate the bringing of faith among the Gentiles. That doesn't guarantee that they're going to be converted. It definitely does not guarantee that. But it does give them much to ponder. And if you're wondering here about the wording of glorifying God, does that actually mean that they are going to be converted? Or does it just mean, as it talks about in Philippians 2, that everyone, no matter what they believe, you will have to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone will know that, whether you're going to heaven or going to hell. I I think in this verse right here, the word specifically glorify is never used in sort of a 
forced sense that, oh, you just must, even if you don't really believe. This word glorify is used in the positive sense that they really do believe. And they really will glorify God. And Peter actually uses an example of this in his letter. We're not going to cover it today, but if you just look over, mine is just across the page, chapter 3, verse 1. He gives an exact example of this. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's talking about a married couple. And he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. How? By the conduct of their wives. They're one to salvation because of the conduct of their wives. I think after being convicted of their sin, where are they going to give the credit? What does Peter actually say? If we go back to our passage, chapter 2, verse 12, what does he actually say? He says, after they're converted, he says, they see your good deeds and they glorify God. They don't glorify our good conduct. They don't say it was all about you. They glorify God. So even though we may think our good deeds may be the thing that saves them, it is definitely part of it, but it's ultimately God that saves because they glorify Him. But it does come at a cost to us. Not everyone will come to saving faith by our conduct. When we live a life marked by honor, outsiders will speak against us as evildoers. That's a cost that we have to face. God doesn't call us to live lives that the world thinks it's worthy to look up to. God calls us to live lives that the world is going to look down upon. They're going to speak against us as evildoers. As long as we live away from our home in heaven, as long as we live as sojourners and exiles in this land, we will be called evil. That is what we will be called. It's a bitter pill to swallow. And I'd say that's unjust suffering. And that's the suffering that Peter talks about. But can we consider that even if we are maligned by many, there may be one that glorifies God on the day of visitation. There may be one. It might be your child. It might be just one client of a hundred. It might be one. And won't all the angels in heaven rejoice and say, praise God for this one that has been preserved to eternal life. What a profound way that God works in the world. What a profound way that God works in people's hearts. That he would use you and me, people that we have to abstain from passions of the flesh. We're sinners. We're not perfect. He would use us to be part of the plan of salvation for those who are outside the faith. I would just say, do you hope to see your friends come to faith? Live honorably. I think that's a clear application from this text. Live honorable lives. Despite what people say, critical, disapproving comments, what you do, how you respond, might just be the deciding factor for them to follow Christ. So verses 11 and 12, I think, give us this general view of live honorably. But as Peter goes on here, he gets more specific. And he's going to get into specific areas of life where we need to live out this honor. The next thing he's going to get into is our conduct that is marked by freedom. And the specific context in which he talks about this, he talks about in the next several sections, and again, we're not going to go through all of them, but for the next several sections, he's going to talk about submission. And I think that this section is marked by freedom, and freedom and submission do not always go together in our minds. 
when I, I know very well what especially women think about the word submission. I've wrestled with this a lot with so many women over the years. Freedom is not the word that comes to mind when we think of submission frequently. We think of times when leaders have abused their power, times when submission is an impressive and dark and silencing way to live. It might seem archaic to choose to follow perhaps blindly and not choose our independence and equality because that's what the world values is independence and equality. But the second that you think that submission is wrong, look to Jesus, the ultimate submitter. <laughs> look at the life and death of Jesus. He submitted himself to local authorities. He submitted himself to his master in heaven. And his submission cost him his life. How's that for being dark and oppressive? <laughs> he was perfectly submissive. And just seeing the picture of Jesus, we can say submission is freedom because it bought us freedom. So let's take a look there. Chapter 2, starting verse 13. I'm going to read 13 down to 17. Conduct marked by freedom. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The exhortation to be subject here is not oppressive. It's freeing. It says here we're to be subject to every human institution, emperors, governors, local authorities, presidents, mayors. If we submit to the leadership and rule of our governing authorities, it says that we're going to be free. If we disobey the law of Pennsylvania, we could be put in jail. Or we could be fined a debt to pay. This is common sense. We will not be free. But why is it so important for Peter to include here? Because this does seem like common sense, doesn't it? It's a, it's a life marked by freedom because in verse 15 he says, For this is the will of God. So the freedom is not just not being indebted to the state for not paying taxes or whatever, speeding ticket and not being put in jail. It's the, the freedom is that you're living the will of God. How often do we ask, what's the will of God for my life? Living freely. That's it. That's one, that's part of it. It's not all of it, but that's part of it. And it says, continuing in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Just a few verses earlier, our good deeds solicited snaring and jeering and saying you're evil. And now our good deed to submitting to authority is put to silence the foolish people. What a profound way God works in the world. We have people yelling at us and then at the same time we are putting them out. Silence. Our lives of free submission to authority mark us as the people of God. Verse 16, it says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God or slaves of God. So we're not ultimately servants of slaves to these human institutions, right? 
We're servants of the heavenly king. We're servants of God. And we are free then to carry out these four pithy imperatives that he gives us. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. These are all kind of broad statements. And they cover everything from paying your taxes to following instructions at work and respecting your next door neighbor, loving the brotherhood. But when pressure against Christianity comes because we are talking about unjust suffering, I think sometimes it's really difficult to know the line between submitting to authorities and following your Christian faith. The line between the gospel and not the gospel. How are you supposed to live? So I'll give you some examples. It could mean, for example, leaving your home church because they're really focusing more on culture and not on the gospel. So you choose to leave there and go to a church that preaches the gospel clearly. It could mean making decisions that your family doesn't agree with. I know I experienced that in my life. When I became a Christian, they all said I was part of a cult. And I put them away and I said, I'm going to do this. I, I, I know that's what my family, my sort of authority is saying to me, but I know that I must follow Christ. It could mean standing up for biblical marriage when the government redefines marriage. It's a difficult line, but it's one that we have to face, and we're, we are increasingly facing it more, aren't we? Because we've been brought into the people of God, Christians' lives are different. We live honorably. We live freely. Let's consider the final mark, the best mark, following Christ. Some mark of Christian conduct. Let me read verse 18. I'll read down through 21 to bring it fresh in our minds. He says, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. After just reading that, we might think our calling in life is to simply submit, because that's what this section is all about. Submitting to local authorities, and in this section it's getting more into workplace things. So submitting to our manager at work, whatever it may be. But really, the calling in life is so much more than that. It's following Christ. When Peter addresses servants here, your translation might say slaves, and it's in the context of serving a, a, a master, we have to understand it is not the same slavery that our country horrifically participated in many years ago. That's not, it's not that type of slavery Slaves in Peter's day, though they were in fact owned by their masters, they were educated, they were paid, they could actually eventually buy their freedom. We don't have that in Western America today. We, we don't actually have that same setup, that same custom. But you could, many commentators just liken this to an employee-employer relationship. So think about the best boss you've ever had. It might be someone you have now. Maybe you're your own boss. How great are you? You're your own boss. 
just think how, how great a boss has been. They, they praise you. They give you the work that you want to do. Maybe they let you go home early on Friday. They pay you really well. They refer you to other people. These are really good bosses, but Peter wants us to consider not our favorite bosses. He says, what about the unjust? Also, not just the good and gentle, but also the unjust. He wants us to submit to the managers who promote their friends instead of you. He wants us to submit to the managers who won't give you a raise because that means their salary won't be as high because it all comes from the same budget. It means they refuse to have your back. They snoop on you sometimes. They overwork you and they demand why you haven't finished what you're supposed to finish when they've overworked you. It's unjust. It doesn't seem fair. They actually treat you like a slave in the truest sense, it feels like, many times, doesn't it? It's these masters we're told to respect. I have not followed this my whole life. That's hard. Verse 19 says, For this, submitting to the just, unjust and just masters, this is a gracious thing. Because we're mindful of God and enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. Why is this a gracious thing? Because in verse 20, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But what if you do good and, and suffer for it and you endure? That's a gracious thing. Well, it's just like following the law of the state of Pennsylvania. If you do bad, you deserve to suffer. But if you do good, that doesn't make sense. So he's saying this is a gracious thing. It's gracious to God. It's commendable to God. We have God's favor and approval when we do this. What does it look like to suffer with hope? It's to not revile. It's to endure the sorrow. This is what Jesus did. This is the example that Peter gives us. Verse 21, it says, For to this, that's suffering unjustly, to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. And what's the example? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus Christ is the ultimate picture of unjust suffering. He committed no sin. Yet, verse 24, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet other mouths reviled him, called him evil. He did not retaliate. He did not threaten. When someone reviles you for no good reason, what do you do in return? What, what's our response? The one who knew no sin took on our sin. That does not seem just. But it says here that it is. It says, Jesus entrusted himself to who? To the one who judges justly. God, in his mercy, determined to send his son to bear our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This seems opposite, but by his wounds you have been healed. 
We have been brought into the people of God. We have been strained like sheep. Verse 25. You've been strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is not only our example in suffering. He is our Savior. We must always remember that. What would Jesus do? We always can't quite follow that to a T, but we can remember he is our Savior. How do we respond to the ultimate picture of the ultimate sufferer and the ultimate injustice? How will we choose to live? I hope we choose to act differently to a watching world. We imitate our Savior by... And trusting our souls to the one who judges justly. We don't revile. We entrust our souls. Under his care, we lay down our lives for, uh, for us, for our sake, but also so that others may see our good behavior and glorify God. We don't retali- retaliate when they revile us. We don't simply live honorably because, it, because it's right. It sounds moral. We live honorably and we live freely because we live according to the call of God, which is to follow Christ, to submit to the reign of Christ. So as we close, I just want to, I just want to say we must not think ever as we suffer that God has abandoned us, especially when we're suffering. It actually means that he is really near. It actually means he is overseeing our souls. He has chosen us. He is working in us. He is helping us to abstain from sin so that a watching world can see the glory of salvation that is at work within us. And I think also we must consider if suffering is a reality for us. So we've been talking so much about suffering. And yesterday I said, praise God, if you you don't find yourself in suffering. But Is a watching world looking at you and saying, you're just like me. We get along so well. In other words, are you standing up for the name of Christ and people thinking that you're weird and different and you're part of a cult? Are are you suffering in that way? Are you standing up for who Christ is? And following him exactly in his suffering because you want to go to the glory of God in heaven. What does it look like to suffer with hope? Live honorably, live freely, follow Jesus, don't revile when reviled, don't threaten when threatened, and trust yourself to the one who judges justly. We have been brought into the people of God. Our lives should have a different kind of conduct. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray the promises of God You have saved us. You are the rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. God, we see our friends and our family and our clients and our doctors who take care of us, and we see them on the sinking sand, grasping, perhaps. God, may you work through us to be a people who rightly stand for who you are, that rightly stand for what we learn in your word about who you are. Help us to suffer. Help us as we entrust our souls to 
to you. Suffering is difficult, but we are comforted knowing that you have experienced the ultimate suffering and the ultimate injustice. Thank you for doing that on our behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, ladies, we're going to take a 15-minute